Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with new clips, imagine that, today from Nancy Pelosi, the BBC, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Sam Cedar Show, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Senator Joe Biden. I've said from the beginning of this war, this war is a grotesque mistake. And last year's bipartisan Iraq study group, they said, the situation in Iraq is grave and deteriorating. They called for action. The facts on the ground are these. After four years, Iraq is in chaos and the government is not being held accountable. The administration is sending troops into the battle who are not mission ready. And when they come home, our veterans are not being honored as the heroes they are. The revelation of appalling conditions at Walter Reed Hospital and VA facilities across the nation remind us once again that our troops are being sent into a war without the right preparation to welcome them home when they return. What kind of message does that send to our troops? In terms of the chaos in Iraq, our commander in Iraq, General Petraeus, recently said, there is no military solution to a problem like that in Iraq. General Petraeus. Yet the president's response to escalating levels of violence is to deploy more troops, a strategy that has been tried and failed, tried and without success, three times already. In the short time since the escalation began, disturbing facts have come to light. The admission by General Peter Pace, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that he is, quote, not comfortable with the readiness of Army units in the United States. The declaration whereby the Department of Defense has finally admitted that elements of a civil war do exist in Iraq. In fact, it's even worse than that. Yesterday, in terms of reconstruction, the conclusion of the Special Gen Inspector General that the failure of the reconstruction effort in Iraq was caused by a lack of planning, coordination, and oversight. In fact, more than $10 billion has disappeared with no accountability. Waste, fraud, and abuse are rampant in the reconstruction in Iraq. How are we going to win the hearts and minds if the money is disappearing in thin air? We must address those and other facts about the war in Iraq. The bill we debate today, the U.S. Troop Readiness, Veterans Health, and Iraq Accountability Act, does that by rebuilding our military, honoring our promises to our veterans, holding the Iraqi government accountable, and enabling us to bring our troops home. sending more troops into the chaos that is the Iraqi Civil War, we must be focused on bringing the war to an end. We can do that by passing this bill, 
that transforms the performance benchmarks that have already been endorsed by President Bush and the Iraqi government into requirements. When those benchmarks are met, or when it becomes clear after a reasonable amount of time that they will not be met, the bill requires that our troops leave Iraq on a schedule that our former colleague Lee Hamilton, a co-chair of the Iraq study group, called responsible, not precipitate. Benchmarks without deadlines are just words. And after four years of this war, words are not enough. As former National Security Advisor Brzezinski wrote in a letter endorsing this bill, quote, it is clear that a different approach is needed if the Iraqis are to be encouraged to make the political accommodations necessary to promote stability and national reconciliation. That should have been happening a long, long time ago. Bring the troops home too soon? It's too late for that four years into a war, a war in which we have been engaged longer than we were in World War II. This bill, in its wisdom, calls upon the Defense Department to adhere to its own standards. The benchmarks were endorsed by the President and the Iraqi government. The guidelines for the um, readiness standards are the Defense Department's own. Those standards are intended to ensure that before our troops are sent into harm's way, they have the training and the equipment they need to enable them to perform their missions successfully. That simply is not happening. The war in Iraq has produced a national security crisis, well described by Mr. Murtha and Mr. Skelton and others in the course of the day. Our readiness is at its lowest level since the Vietnam War. By addressing that crisis, the bill supports the troops, supports the troops, and protects the American people. How do we support the troops? By sending them into harm's way without the proper training and equipment, without the proper dwell time, time at home and taking them there and overextending their stays and redeploying them over and over again. This bill says adhere to your own guidelines. Over and over again, Senator Reid, a Democratic leader in the Senate, and I have appealed to the President to have a new direction in Iraq change the mission from combat to training, enabling us to redeploy our troops for limited purpose in Iraq. Engage in diplomacy, encourage the Iraqis to engage in the regional diplomacy so necessary to bring stability to the region. Have real reconstruction, <clears throat> real reconstruction. Reform it, reconstruction, not corruption and have the political change that is necessary, amend the Constitution to relieve the civil unrest and strife that has produced so much violence. When we do that, we can bring our troops home. We can redeploy them out of Iraq. And we can turn our attention to the real war on terror in Afghanistan. <laughs>
Attention. A matter of weeks ago, I was in Afghanistan with some of our colleagues, and the commander of the coalition forces there told us flat out that if we had not taken our attention away from Afghanistan, if we had stayed focused there, the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban would not have the opportunity that they have there now to make a comeback. That is where the war on terror is. The war in Iraq is a separate war from the war on terror. It's a separate war. <clears throat> Again, the American people have lost faith in the President's conduct of this war. The American people see the reality of this war. The President does not. Today, the Congress has an historic opportunity to vote to end the war in Iraq. Each member of Congress will make a choice. The world is watching for our decision. The choice is clear. Will we renew the President's blank check for an open-ended war without end? Or, we will or will we take a giant step to end the war and responsibly redeploy troops out of Iraq? The American people want a new direction in Iraq. Today, the Congress will provide it. The American people do not support a war without end. And neither should this Congress. I urge an island. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, Dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. The number of British troops serving in Iraq is to be reduced. The announcement was made by Tony Blair in the House of Commons. Britain currently has more than 7,000 military personnel in Iraq. That'll be cut to 5,500 in the next few months. And the Prime Minister says further cuts are likely to follow. The actual reduction in forces will be from the present 7,100, itself down from over 9,000 two years ago and 40,000 at the time of the conflict, to roughly 5,500. However, with the exception of forces which will remain at Basra Palace, the British forces will be located at Basra Air Base and be in a support role. They will transfer the Shaiba Logistics Base, the old state building, and the Shat al-Arab Hotel to full Iraqi control. The British forces that remain in Iraq will have the following tasks. Training and support to Iraqi forces, securing the Iraq-Iran border, securing supply routes, and above all, the ability to conduct operations against extremist groups and be there in support of the Iraqi army when called upon. The opposition leader is David Cameron. He gave this response to the Prime Minister's announcement. That news will be welcomed in this House, in the country, and especially to the families of those serving in Iraq over the coming months. 
We owe a huge debt to the professionalism, the courage and the dedication shown by our armed forces serving in Iraq as elsewhere. The Liberal Democrats have always opposed the war in Iraq. The party's leader is Samin Campbell. The unpalatable truth, though, Mr. De Mr. Speaker, is this, that we will leave behind a country on the brink of civil war where reconstruction has stalled, corruption is endemic, and a region which is a lot less stable than it was in 2003. Dan Plesch is a security expert with the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He says the government's decision has been influenced by the deteriorating relationship between Iran and America. Many in Washington will see Britain, frankly, surrendering Basra to the Iranians. Iranian influence in Iraq is uh, at its height in the southern Shia regions of Iraq. There's also another political line running here, which is the problem with Iran's nuclear program. We know the Prime Minister has re refused uh, to rule out military action against Iran, but in that circumstance, having British troops amidst enormous numbers of uh, Iranian sympathizers in the Shia South would be almost suicidal for the British Army. So what does the United States make of Britain's decision? David Johnson is Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in London. Our deployment as well as the redeployment of British forces are based on the conditions which they encounter. And we're pleased that the conditions in Basra are such that British forces are able to transition more control to the Iraqis. That's exactly the objective that we have in Baghdad. And as uh, many people have pointed out, we face a much different situation there where organized sectarian violence is the is the rule of the day, and that's the reason for the, not just the surge in troops, but the change in their deployment, the change in the way that they work with Iraqi security forces there that we're introducing in order to defeat that sectarian violence. Are you concerned at all that the South, without the international presence over the next couple of years, might actually become a place where the insurgency grows uh, while you put pressure on what's happening in Baghdad? I don't think that uh, you should look at this as uh, something, as a simple displacement equation. The south is largely Shia. Uh, the central region, and particularly Baghdad, is, uh, is multi-confessional, and that's where the sectarian violence is the, the greatest. Uh, almost 80 percent of the violent incidents that we confront throughout Iraq take place in and around Baghdad. So I think we do confront much different conditions, and we're pleased that, uh, that the, the British, based on the conditions that they face, are able to redeploy their forces. The Defence Secretary is Des Brown. He spoke to Simon Mayo about the cuts. Why now is because the time is now right, having made the progress that we had. Why this number um, is broadly because presently we are in five places in and around Basra, and we intend in this part of the process to hand over three of them progressively over the next months to um, Iraqi security forces. The uh, reduction in numbers uh, comes as a consequence of us not having to protect our own forces in five different places. We will, we will have them in two places, Bajra Palace in Bajra and in the Bajra Air Station, which is outside the city. Was it your hope that more could leave sooner um, and that the fact is that the security situation on the ground is just not improving as quickly as you hoped it would. Well, can I just remind you that I mean, when I made a speech in November, I said that by the end of this year, that's 2007, I hoped that we would be able to reduce um, our troop level in, um, in, in, in uh, Iraq by thousands. 
Um, we are announcing today that we are able to re- reduce the troop level by about 1,600 and we believe that if we continue to make the progress that we have been able to be made, to, 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 that we have been able to make, we will, we will be able to address the issue of troop levels again sometime towards the end of the summer. So I'm absolutely confident that by the end of the year we will, we will be able to reach um, the prediction I made, which was that by the end of this year we will have reduced our troop levels by thousands. The Defence Secretary, Des Brown. The BBC's defence correspondent is Paul Wood. He spoke to Peter Allen about the government's decision to withdraw troops from Basra. Mr Blair says, uh, in in his view, Operation Sinbad, big rolling security operation, has shown that the Iraqis can stand on their own two feet and that will allow the British to withdraw. certainly true there's been an intensive effort to bring the Iraqi police up to scratch. It's also equally true, as anybody who visits Basra can tell you, that human rights are in a pretty poor state. There are still serious security problems uh, and uh, nobody should think that although Basra is safer, that it is a safe place. Is it safer than it was or has it in fact deteriorated over the last couple of years, do you think? A lot of effort has been put into building up the security forces. Um, You will, if you put that effort in, see some improvement. It doesn't mean there aren't very serious problems, and it comes down to the allegation made by some of which there is considerable evidence that essentially we have ceded Basra to two competing Shiite militias. And when the British army goes out on the streets, it can dominate things, but it can't be everywhere at once. And if you're uh, an ordinary Basrawi, uh, essentially you see the British army uh, once uh, uh, in a very infrequent time, and the rest of the time you've got to look out for the Mahdi militia. Right. And is is there any justification in this argument that the army has effectively just become a target, that there's a lot of people queuing up to have a pot shot at them when they do go in the streets? Well, that's the fact on the ground, um, and it's a question of... At what point do you spend most of your time just protecting yourself? And the one army commander told me he thought that uh, even in quiet times they were spending 60% of their time doing force protection. There's another world inside of me that you may never see There's secrets in this life that I can't hide Somewhere in this darkness there's a light that I can't find it's too far away or maybe I'm just blind maybe I'm just blind so hold me when I'm here love me when I'm wrong hold me when I'm scared and love me when I'm gone everything I the Democratic side uh, there's the front runner, Hillary Clinton, there's Barack Obama, there's John Edwards, uh, Kucinich and Richardson and Dodd and Biden. Okay, but, but you know, what about our next guest from the past? Um, what about a guy who is more experienced than all of them put together, who isn't a senator or a member of Congress now, uh, who, is, who is wicked smart, but a guy, he's a guy with huge name recognition, um, and he's a guy who in, in September 2002... He braved unbelievable ridicule and sheer nastiness for for speaking out totally presciently against the war uh, before it even happened. This was September 2002. What about what about Al Gore? Um, I'm going to do something I don't usually do here and play kind of a little bit of a longish clip because I think it's important to hear what Al Gore was saying uh, to understand how right Al Gore was about terrorism and 9-11 and Iraq and Afghanistan even um, almost five years ago. Here's Al Gore speaking at the Commonwealth Club in September 2002. I don't think we should allow anything to diminish our focus on the necessity for avenging the 3,000 Americans who were murdered and dismantling 
that network of terrorists that we know were responsible for it. The fact that we don't know where they are should not cause us to focus instead on some other enemy whose location may be easier to identify. We have other enemies. We have other enemies. But we should focus first and foremost as our top priority on winning the war against terrorism. Nevertheless, President Bush is telling us that America's most urgent requirement of the moment right now is not to redouble our efforts against al-Qaeda, not to stabilize the nation of Afghanistan after driving his host government from power, even as al-Qaeda members slip back across the border to set up in Afghanistan again. Rather, he is telling us that our most urgent task right now is to shift our focus and concentrate on immediately launching a new war against Saddam Hussein. And the president is proclaiming a new, uniquely American right to preemptively attack whomsoever he may deem represents a potential future threat. Moreover, President Bush is demanding in this high political season that Congress speedily affirm that he has the necessary authority to proceed immediately against Iraq and, for that matter, under the language of his resolution, against any other nation in the region, regardless of subsequent developments or emerging circumstances. Now, the timing of this sudden burst of urgency to immediately take up this new cause as America's new top priority, displacing our former top priority, the war against Osama bin Laden, was explained by, innocently, I believe, by the White House Chief of Staff in his now well-known statement, and I quote, from an advertising point of view, you don't launch a new product line until after Labor Day, end quote. This is Al Gore speaking five years ago, uh, four and a half years ago, in, in September 2002, before we invaded Iraq. He was pilloried for this speech, and he was right. And, and going back now and hearing how prescient and right it was, even before the invasion, I have to say, I'm changing my mind. It kind of makes me wish that Al Gore was running for president. The administration has failed thus far to lay out an assessment of how it thinks the course of a war will run, even as it has given free run to persons both within and close to the administration to suggest at every opportunity that this will be a, a pretty easy matter. And, and it may well be. But the administration has not said much of anything to clarify its idea of what would follow regime change or the degree of engagement that it is prepared to accept for the United States in Iraq in the months and years after a regime change has taken place. Now, I believe that this is unfortunate because in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, more than a year ago, we had an enormous reservoir of goodwill and sympathy 
and shared resolve all over the world. That has been squandered in a year's time and replaced with great anxiety all around the world, not primarily about what the terrorist networks are going to do, but about what we're going to do. And now, my point is, my point is not that they're right to feel that way, but that they do feel that way. And that has consequences for us. Squandering all that goodwill and replacing it with anxiety in a year's time is similar to what was done by turning a $100 billion surplus into a $200 billion deficit in a year's time. Again, this is Al Gore speaking four and a half years ago in September 2002 before the invasion of Iraq, talking about, hey, after regime change, how much engagement are we going to be willing to uh, get involved in there in Iraq for the months and years after Saddam is toppled? This is September 2002. This is six months before the invasion. He's speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And, you know, I don't know if Al Gore would be a better president than any of the other Democratic candidates already running. But I think I want him as a candidate because I think having been this right, this publicly from the position that he was in in 2002 would have set a pretty important standard uh, for, for would set a, pr- a pretty important standard for this campaign on the on the central issue of the time. This this thing that he was talking about before it happened. In fall of 2002. And he and he wasn't it, it's not that he was just right in the sense that he was anti-war. Lots of us were anti-war, you know, Kucinich and Obama among the people uh, who were anti-war at this time. But Al Gore at this time was really, really, really specifically right about how things were going to turn out. Here's another of the main points I want to make. If we quickly succeed in a war against the weakened and depleted fourth-rate military of Iraq and then quickly abandon that nation, as President Bush has quickly abandoned almost all of Afghanistan after defeating a fifth-rate military power there, then the resulting chaos in the aftermath of a military victory in Iraq could easily pose a far greater danger to the United States than we presently face from Saddam. And nobody knew at that time that that should have been the biggest applause line of the day. But they didn't, nobody knew at that time. This was the fall of 2002 before we invaded. Al Gore speaking in San Francisco. I just think that um, if we end the war in Iraq the way we ended the war in Afghanistan, we could very well be much worse off than we are today. And when you ask the administration about this, what's their intention in the aftermath of a war? Secretary Rumsfeld was asked recently about what our responsibility would be for restabilizing Iraq in the aftermath of an invasion. And his answer was, and I quote, that's for the Iraqis to come together and decide. It's very prescient stuff. Gore was also right in this speech, I think, recognizing that it was right to speak out about what the U.S. was doing at home. And the emerging scandal at that time, four and a half years ago, this is, the emerging scandal of the the secret prisons and detention without trial. 
far more damaging is the administration's attack on fundamental constitutional rights uh, that we ought to have and do have as American citizens. The very idea that an American citizen can be imprisoned without recourse to judicial process or remedies, and that this can be done on the sole say-so of the President of the United States or those acting in his name is beyond the pale and un-American, and it ought to be stopped. I've got one last clip for you here about the, the big picture of American leadership in the world. Uh, as Al Gore saw it four and a half years ago before the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and he uses the E word here, uh, a word that most, uh, most politicians still won't use, certainly that most would not have used four and a half years ago uh, in the fall of 2002. Regarding other countries, the administration's disdain for the views of others is well documented and need not be reviewed here. It is more important to note the consequences of an emerging national strategy that not only celebrates American strengths, but actually appears to glorify the notion of dominance. The word itself has been used in the councils of the administration. If what America represents to the world is leadership in a commonwealth of equals, then our friends are legion. If what we represent to the world is empire, then it is our enemies who will be legion. If what we represent to the world is empire, then our enemies will be legion. I'm not saying that Al Gore would be the best president in the world, or even necessarily that he would be better than the other Democratic candidates in the race. But I'm saying that looking back at his record and what he has been saying since 2000, uh, looking at who else is running, looking at uh, how all the primaries are going to be front-loaded so it all gets decided within a one-month primary season this time next year. I'm just saying that looking back on Al Gore and in 2002 and since the war on terror, since 9-11, I am, I am changing my mind on his candidacy, and I wish that he was running. I saw it written and I saw it say. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Last week, eight anti-war Democrats voted against the supplemental spending bill when it came before the House. One of those lawmakers, Congressmember Dennis Kucinich of Ohio, joins us from Capitol Hill. Congressmember Kucinich is also running for the Democratic presidential nomination. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Congressman Kucinich. Good morning, Amy. It's good to have you with us. First of all, as you stand um, uh, overlooking the Capitol, talk about your vote against the war funding bill. 
were given false choices. We were told that we either uh, buy into President Bush's plan, which would keep the war going indefinitely, or accept a democratic version of the war in Iraq, which would keep the war going for another year or two. I say those choices weren't uh, sufficient. The Democrats could have refused to send a bill forward. We didn't have to fund this war. We're not under any obligation to keep the war going. And yet our leaders took another path. Furthermore, Amy, you may be interested to know that the 2008 budget, which is before Congress today and which will be voted on tomorrow, contains another $145 billion for the war. And on top of that, they're putting another $50 billion for the war in fiscal year 2009. So this talk about ending the war by March or by September belies the fact that the budget has money in it to keep the war going into 2009. And I think that's wrong. I think the American people will reject that type of thinking. And I'm standing strong to say, get out now. I put forth a plan embodied in H.R. 1234 to accomplish just that. But what do you say to those who make the argument that if President Bush has on his desk a bill that gives money, um, gives a fortune um, in continuing the war, and he has to uh, veto it uh, because he doesn't like the timetable, that this puts him in a very difficult position? Our decisions have to be way above politics. We have the lives of our troops at stake here. There's no military victory in Iraq. We're there illegally. The, the occupation is fueling the insurgency. Democrats can still, after President Bush vetoes the bill, which he will, Democrats can still take the right position, which is refuse to fund the war, use money in the pipeline to bring the troops home. What about the pressure um, from the leadership, the Democratic Party, from the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, um, all of the stories going around of uh, Congress members voting for the funding so that they could uh, help out the spinach farmers, etc.? On matters of war and peace, I think people have to vote their conscience. I can say I wasn't pressured. But what about those that were, and what about the spending bill going way beyond funding war? It's a legitimate concern. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're for peace, you vote for peace. If you're for peace, you don't vote for war because somebody's giving you a, a, a plum in a, in a bill that's designed to keep a war going. I think the American people want new leadership, which understands that if you're for peace, you vote for peace. You don't fund wars. And so I'm moving forward with a plan, it's embodied in H.R. 1234, that would stop the funding and the occupation, close the bases, bring the troops home, and set in motion a parallel process that would stabilize Iraq with the help of the international community, which will only help, by the way, if the, unless, you know, if the United States takes a new course and ends the occupation. So my plan envisions that America will take a new direction. But what's, what's happening right now, Amy, is we're looking in this budget, and, and people that, and Democrats that look at this budget today are going to be surprised to find out that our leaders are proposing keeping the war going into 2009. Let me play a clip of you, of House Speaker, for you, of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pushing for the passage of the supplemental spending bill. This was her comment after the bill passed. Proudly, this new Congress voted to bring an end to the war in Iraq. It took one great giant step in that direction. It voted no to giving a blank check to an open-ended commitment to war without end to the President of the United States, and yes, to begin 
the end of the war and the redeployment of our troops. I then want to play for you um, a clip of President Bush, uh, President Bush's comment after the House passed the spending bill last week. This bill has too much pork, too many conditions, and an artificial timetable for withdrawal. As I've made clear for weeks, I will veto it if it comes to my desk. And because the vote in the House was so close, it is clear that my veto would be sustained. Today's action in the House does only one thing. It delays the delivery of vital resources for our troops. Congressmember Dennis Kucinich, your response. Well, it's, it's the Democrats' position should have been and can still be that we refuse to fund the war, that we don't give this president a dime to keep the war going, that we use money in the pipeline to bring the troops home and set in motion a parallel process that would secure Iraq. We're under no obligation to keep this war going. But I, I would say, Amy, that if you look at the budget, which is facing Congress tomorrow, it provides not only $145 billion for fiscal year 08 for the war, for all of it, but another $50 billion for fiscal year 09. I wonder how that squares with Democratic leaders' position that they want to bring the troops home in March or in September of next year. There's something that's contradictory here. And so I'm going to try to see if I can reconcile that today in Congress by talking to leadership and alerting my fellow members that money is in the budget to keep this war going past President Bush's term. President Bush has been very clear. He's going to keep this war going through the end of his term. I say that America should get out now, that it's not a choice between President Bush or keeping the war going another year, year and a half. We need to get out now and we need to let the troops know we truly support them by bringing them home. Uh, into the 1990s when we had a Democratic president and uh, some Republican senators didn't agree with some of the foreign policy decisions he made, namely in Somalia, Haiti, and Yugoslavia. And they had some interesting things to say. Um, for example, in 1993, uh, 23 Republican senators supported a bill to cut off funding, to cut off funding for military operations after March 31st, 1994 in Somalia unless the president secured authorization from Congress, which now the president says, I don't have to listen to Congress, and all the Republican congressmen say, yes, sir. And all the Republican senators say, yes, sir. So uh, all Republican senators, Senator Bennett, Bond, Cochran, Domenici, Hatch, Hutchinson, Luger, McConnell, Specter, Stevens, John Warner, all of them voted in favor of that measure. I'll give you a quote from one of the senators. I think you might recognize him. His name is John McCain. Mm, interesting. Okay, buckle up for this. This resolution establishes, in effect, a date certain for a vote on the commitment of the United States forces to Somalia. 
I think we all realize that we have drifted from the use of force to secure humanitarian relief to an open-ended effort at peace enforcement and nation-building. The orderly way to stop it is for the president to present a plan for shaping U.S. withdrawal, set a date for that plan, and then have the Congress of the United States either endorse or reject such a proposal. Do you have in front of you what McCain said yesterday? Uh, I don't, unfortunately, but it can't be anything but the exact opposite of what we just called. Yeah, I don't either, but I mean, he said uh, essentially that setting a date certain was a, a crime and, and one of the low points of immoral, one of the low points of, uh, of American foreign policy. Uh, we got to find that in juxtaposition. But I mean, look at this. Senator McCain saying, date certain, we must have a withdrawal date. It's unconscionable not to have a withdrawal date. When it was about Senator, um, I'm sorry, President Clinton in Somalia. So then we go to one more thing about uh, on August 10th, on 1994, again about Somalia. Um, we, uh, they were in favor of a, a Senator Kempthorne uh, uh, Appropriations Act that said, quote, none of the funds appropriated by this act may be used for the continuous presence in Somalia of the United States military personnel after September 30th, 1994. So meaning... After this certain date, you can no longer use funds for our troops in the field in Somalia. 38 Republican senators uh, endorsed that. Bennett, Bond, Cochran, Craig, Domenici, Grassley, Gregg, Hatch, Hutchinson, Lott, Luger, McConnell, Murkowski, Smith, Specter, Stevens, Warner. They all said, after this date, we cut off the funding in yeah. Somalia. And almost all of them are still there. Yes. Uh, by the way, McCain, uh, 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 he said we should call it the Date Certain for Surrender Act. <laughs> I guess that's what it was in Somalia, Shameful, too. Shameful, disgraceful. Jesus what he said. Christ, the hypocrisy is unbelievable. So then you go to Haiti, and in Haiti, on in 1994, 40 Republican senators were in favor of setting a date certain. Here's Senator Hutchinson. I think the president should come and report to Congress and to the American people. He needs to set parameters of this mission. He needs to set a timetable for withdrawal. Hmm, that's interesting. Apparently back then, 40 Republican senators, all for a timetable for withdrawal. That was different because the... What's that? Fire! <laughs> <laughs> okay, look away. One last one. Now, they we got, you know, uh, Haiti, we got Somalia, now we go to Yugoslavia. Uh, and there we had uh, Congressional Resolution 21 about the Federal Republic of uh, Yugoslavia. Here's our old friend Senator Conrad Burns from Montana. Thankfully, Luckily, uh, thankfully, not around anymore. Yeah, the former senator from Montana, thanks to a lot of good work uh, by good people across the country. He said, I say to you, the nations are most affected must now assume the responsibility that confronts them. To ask us to participate in a civil war, which is not our character, is a lot to ask. Can we help? Yes, we can. We can do it in different ways. But to ask us to place our men and women in harm's way to force submission of a people with deep resolve in an area where not many, where not very many folks have ever been beaten into submission, that is asking of us a great deal. Now, since he took the exact opposite position in Iraq, he's no longer the senator from Montana.
For most Americans, the big political question about the Iraq war is how and when the United States should leave that country. And a big factor in that question is what Iraqis think of the presence of U.S. troops. When USA Today and ABC News teamed up to poll Iraqis on life in their country, they asked that very question, but neither outlet saw the answer as very newsworthy. USA Today buried the answer at the bottom of a March 20th report, only then telling readers, quote, by more than three to one, Iraqis say the presence of U.S. forces is making the security situation worse, close quote. Iraqis are also opposed to sending more troops to Iraq, the White House's surge policy, in other words. ABC News didn't seem to find this part of the poll worth reporting at all. According to a Nexus News search, the Iraq survey has been covered over several days on morning and evening newscasts with no mention of this key finding. ABC World News anchor Charles Gibson did refer to a related point that 51% of Iraqis support attacks on U.S. troops, what he termed, quote, perhaps the most chilling question for Americans and the American military, close quote. Maybe so, but ABC viewers would be better informed if they knew more context. Even more Iraqis don't want U.S. troops in their country and think their presence makes things worse. When my head's full of things that I can't mention Seems I actually get things right But I can't understand what I did last night And it's hard to rely on my own good senses When I miss so much that requires attention Democrats uh, today had a big, or yesterday, had a big win in the Senate, folks. The House has now voted for a, uh, a pullout in uh, September of 08. The Senate has now pull, uh, uh, called for troop withdrawal, or will, I should say. The big test for this was whether or not uh, the Republicans were going to be able to strip out of the appropriations bill. The provision that calls for troop withdrawal beginning within 120 days. Uh, to be completed in a non-binding fashion by the spring of 08. But more importantly, more important than those uh, two elements, because we know that George Bush is going to veto these bills. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of politics back and forth with uh, George Bush cutting off funding for the troops uh, because he doesn't like the strings that are attached to it. And uh, that will play out as it will play out. But more importantly... What we now see is finally the Democrats taking a position, and Bill Sherr has been talking about this for a year. I'm talking, of course, Bill Sherr, liberaloasis.com. He says the most important provision in both these appropriations bills is that there will be no money spent to build bases for a permanent occupation of Iraq. Remember, there were provisions in both a House and Senate bill passed about six months ago, uh, eight months ago now. That called for no permanent occupation of Iraq, and it was stripped out by the Republicans in conference. When George Bush has been asked, are you in favor, is it American policy for a permanent occupation of Iraq? All he says, that's up to the Iraqis. Which is simply a clever way, or not so clever way, depending on your perspective, of deflecting the question, what is American policy vis-a-vis -vis permanent occupation of Iraq? I don't know. It's up to the Iraqis. 
Well, what is the American position? I don't know. Ask the Iraqis. I'm not going to be in office. I'm going to be gone by 2009. And uh, so this is a, uh, a very important step. The Democrats have now uh, been able to take in uh, just the three months that they have been in office. Uh, and uh, I, frankly, I'm pleased by it. Uh, but uh, different people may have a different perspective. Jerry in Long Island, welcome to the program, Jerry. Yes, thank you very much, Sam, for taking my call. Thank you for calling, Jerry. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, well, I'm listening to the show anyway. Yeah, and I have to react to this because I do have a different point of view. I mean, first of all, you know, the Iraq war funding legislation, it would, it, the timetable proposed in it by Democrats in Congress for U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq is too little, not soon enough, first of all. And secondly, the Iraq war funding legislation, especially the one coming from the U.S. Senate with its non-binding troop withdrawal deadline, as far as I'm concerned, is spineless and pathetic and indefensible because it's non-binding. And after all, I mean, this immoral war in Iraq that's based on a pack of lies, it's gone on long enough, and now the Democrats control Congress. What they need to do is well, establish, uh, why not a legal now, Jerry, binding withdrawal deadline? Jerry, hold on for, Jerry, Jerry, this year. Jerry, hold on yeah. for one second. Now, I agree with everything you're saying, but yeah. the only thing that I think you have to actually just look at the reality of this. You say the Democrats control uh, the Senate. They do, but not to the extent that they have the ability to pass anything beyond this. I mean, this is, if you had to... They're making a statement. Why not make the strongest statement and say, we want the troops out September of this year, or Labor Day, September 3rd of this year? I have been saying that same thing, but the fact of the matter is, Mm -hmm. when you say the Democrats, you're not talking about a monolith here. Now, they passed this with the backing of two Republicans. Yes, but in the House, I looked very carefully, because it was reprinted in the New York Times. Every single Democrat, with the exception of Dennis Kucinich, who had enough uh, spine and guts based on principle to vote against it, every single Democrat voted for the House of Representatives. Uh, well, no, I think uh, Barbara Lee and there's a couple other people actually in the in the Out of Iraq Caucus who didn't vote for it. They su- they told uh, members of the Out of Iraq Caucus to support it, uh, but they themselves did not vote for it. But but your but point's well taken, Jim. voted for it anyway. Yeah, I understand, Jim. The theory Jerry. is, well, we have to get Republicans to support us. That's the theory that Democrats offer these watered-down proposals. But That's not the, the theory, Jerry. Vote, Jerry, not, not Jerry, Jerry, yeah. that's not the theory. The theory is it's the only way they can get the entire Democratic caucus to support it. Well, why should that be? I mean, Because, Jerry, I mean, the fact of the matter is, listen, I understand, I understand your frustration here. Yeah. I understand, and I agree with you, we are involved in an immoral occupation of another country. We are caught in the middle of a civil war. I have said since... Well, I mean, I guess publicly to the extent that I had an opportunity on a radio program of uh, February of 2002, that uh, this was a mistake, that it was immoral, that it was unjust, it was unnecessary. There was no threat to this country from Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't change the fact that you do have Democrats, not the majority of them, but a sizable minority, uh, so-called blue dog Democrats, Joe loved the Warman uh, style, arguably, he's not a Democrat, but. And these people simply are, are hanging on. And now, whether they're doing it because they're constituent, they think their constituents want it or what, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that you cannot deny. I mean, if, I, if, if you had told me three months ago that the Senate was going to be able to pass this type of legislation attached to the Appropriations Committee, I would have told you, you are dreaming. This is a step in the right direction. The bottom line is, it's not, this war is not going to end as long as George Bush is president. The occupation is not going to end. 
But what we have been able to achieve here, and I'm not saying we should all, all right, wrap it up, go home now. But what we've been able to achieve here is a step in the right direction to put more pressure on uh, those other Republicans. What, how many weeks ago? Was it three weeks ago? This same vote was taken in the Senate and the, and the Democrats lost. So within three weeks, they've been able to pass or at least get uh, all indications are they're going to pass this legislation now that they have uh, defeated the ability to strip out that amendment. Now, that is an astonishing legislative feat. Am I am I satisfied? No. But I think we must at, we must look at this thing with clear eyes now. This is a step in the right direction. I mean, what what is going on uh, in Washington is immoral. But we have been able to push the Democratic Party further along the line uh, than I think could have been reasonably expected two weeks ago. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I'm simply talking about this in in in, in, in terms of reality. United States Congress debates a resolution condemning that country's troop surge in Iraq. When the vote comes tomorrow, it's almost certain to pass and to become the first congressional censure of President Bush's Iraq policy since the 2003 invasion. Our Washington correspondent, Justin Webb, has been listening to the arguments. Remember their faces. Remember their names. The Republicans in the United States Senate. They're willing to send tens of thousands more troops to face danger in Iraq, but they don't have the courage to face a vote. Tell your senators, stop the escalation. The pressure group MoveOn.org thinks it has Republican senators on the run. They have indeed blocked debate of the troop surge in the upper house. But in the lower house, it's well underway, with the Democrats' leader Nancy Pelosi leading the charge. In a few weeks, the war in Iraq will enter its fifth year causing thousands of deaths, tens of thousands of casualties, and damaging the standing of the United States in the international community. And there is no end in sight. The American people have lost faith in President Bush's course of action in Iraq, and they are demanding a new direction. There's no question that Democrats feel freer to threaten this president than they felt before. Carol Shea Porter is one of the new intake. She defeated a Republican supporter of the war in the state of New Hampshire. While Senate Republicans cut and ran from this most important issue, House Democrats will ask the tough questions about the president's new strategy and continue to insist on a new direction while always putting our troops first. The days of rubber stamping the president's war plans are over. Notice that neither Ms. Shea Porter nor Ms. Pelosi spelled out what that new direction might be. The fact is, the congressional resolution they'll vote on tomorrow does nothing more than attack the troop surge. It does not suggest bringing troops home. Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, was scathing. The Democrats have held 52 hearings. 
so they can show one resolution on the House floor that has no bearing on the president's policy, does not have the force of law, does not advocate the withdrawal of troops, and does nothing except except have a tantrum here on the House floor. So please explain this new new direction, Madam Speaker. This is not a new direction. It's political posturing of the worst kind. Madam Speaker, where is your plan? Where is your plan for victory in Iraq? Where is your plan for success and national security? But other Republicans are worried. Every member of the House of Representatives faces the electors every two years. What is the point of supporting your president if he is history, which he will be when the next election is held? So some Republicans are intending to vote with the Democrats. Among them, Mike Castle from Delaware. We have increased troop levels in the past including Fallujah in 2004 and Baghdad this past July, with mixed results. Despite the incredible efforts of our brave soldiers, it is clear to me that an increase in American forces alone cannot resolve this conflict. How many Republicans will rebel? That's the key question tomorrow when the vote is held. A handful would be acceptable to the White House. Dozens would be a problem. Not because the vote itself has teeth, it doesn't, but because the Democrats would be emboldened to seek more, to think about tinkering with the funding of the troops already in Iraq. In other words, to do what a majority of the American people want and end the war. President Bush will have none of that. I'm going to make it very clear to the members of Congress starting now that... You know, and it, they, they need to fund our troops, and they need to make sure we have the flexibility necessary to get the job done. Uh, secondly, I, th- I find it interesting that there is a declaration about a plan that they have not given a chance to work. The point the president is making is that his opponents are taking a risk. If Iraq ends in disaster, he will say it was their fault. They lost their nerve. Voting against the troop surge is not risk-free. I really encourage you all to communicate with the show, and there are lots of ways you can do it. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, leave comments on the show notes blog, send emails directly to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Welcome to New Yorker Seymour Hirsch, ladies and gentlemen. Seymour. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. I am uh, a truly a fan of yours. You are a real investigative journalist. Uh, I'm grateful the New Yorker prints you so much. You broke the stories on uh, the Malai Massacre, Abu Ghraib in Iraq. You truly do see more. <laughs> and... Uh, what do you uh, what do you see now? I know from your latest article we should probably be worrying about a war with Iran. Well, sure, we should be worrying every day about everything. With you know, we've got one and a half years left, a little bit more than that, and I think we just have to wait it out. And maybe we can get to 2009 without every Muslim in the world coming after us. Maybe not. But what I get from your recent article is that Dick Cheney thinks that Iran is going to have a nuclear bomb soon. And he's going to give it to Hezbollah, and Hezbollah is going to use it on us. And I understand that you interviewed the head of Hezbollah, which is a very hard thing to do. How did you get in to see Mel Gibson? <laughs> you know, 
Uh, oh, I kid. I, 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 I would do that to Hassan Nasrallah. I guess he wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, he, Nasrallah, the head of, uh, of Hezbollah, is a very hard to see right now because, as you know, there's a death threat on his head from the Israelis uh, since uh, his... His group became the first people in the Middle East to defeat the Israelis. And so he's pretty much on the, on the line right now. Um, and he's very concerned because he thinks that this White House is trying to create a civil war, that is war between Sunnis and Shia all over the Middle East. We have it in Iraq right now, and that's, that's a goner. But he thinks it's, they're trying to spread it. Um, right. And if we're going to really understand what's going on in the Middle East right now, we do have to understand what's going on with the Sunnis and the Shiites. Now, our audience, very bright people, I think they probably know. But let's pretend that they know only as much as George Bush. Um, <laughs> so let's review a little primer here, okay? The, the Sunnis, they're the majority of the Muslim world, right? The Muslim world has two divisions, the Sunnis and the Shiites. And the right? Sunnis are 90%. Sunnis are 90%, and they include big countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Jordan. And, of course, Al-Qaeda are real enemies. Absolutely. Now, the Shiites, they're, of course, all of Iran. That's a Shiite country. That's the minority. And there's a lot of oil, Bill. A lot and of oil. a lot of oil. We'll get to the oil later. And Iraq. Most of Iraq is Shiite. But they had always been ruled by the Sunnis, like Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. Now, we upended that country... We got rid of the Sunnis. The Shiites are now in control. So we're kind of worried now that the Shiites are ascendant. So I understand from your article that we have been funding some radical Sunni groups, which would be al-Qaeda. So it seems to me in five years we've gone from threatening to wipe out al-Qaeda to watching them become resurgent to now joining them. Are you know, we actually the next country that's in the axis of evil? You know, <laughs> um, it's... The only thing I would, I would change slightly is we're throwing a lot of money. We're not get, it's not appropriated money. It's not money that came from Congress. Congress isn't cut in on this. This White House simply ignores Congress, ignores the laws when it comes to a national security covert operations. And working with the Saudis, we have put, pumped an awful lot of money into Lebanon. And some of that money and some of the money we're pumping in could have come from the money that was been wasted in Iraq. You know, there's talk of billions of dollars missing. It's hard to trace black, dirty money, undercover money. But some of that money that we've thrown in and some of the money, the Saudi money, the Saudis have thrown in, had, has ended up in, in the hands of three uh, jihadists, uh, hardline groups, the kind of guys that two or three years ago, if we'd learned about, we would have them in Gitmo, in Guantanamo. Instead, we're letting them stay. In, this is in Lebanon because eventually, uh, in the Bush world, there's going to be, we think, a war between the Sunnis in Lebanon and Hezbollah in Lebanon. We, want, well, we, we don't want Hezbollah to get any place in Lebanon. But if there is a war between the Sunnis and the Shiites, could that not sort of be good for us in a selfish way? I'm, I wouldn't ever say that George Bush planned this because before the war, he didn't even know that there were Sunnis and Shiites. <laughs> but in a Clouseau, Clouseau kind of way, could he have kind of bungled into a... Solution that would be good for America that they hate each because don't they hate each other more than they even hate us? Well, if you're a Sunni, if you're a jihadist Sunni, a radical Sunni out of out of Saudi Arabia, a Salafi or a Wahhabi, you think that anybody that doesn't practice your faith the way you do is is an infidel, and you can be you can wipe them out. And don't forget, you're right. Fifteen of the nineteen guys that flew into the t twin towers in New York were Saudis. So we by supporting those groups, we are supporting people 
who may be useful in a war against Hezbollah. The jihadists are very tough. Hezbollah is very tough. But ultimately, they will turn on us, too. That's the real issue. If okay. you give money to bad guys, the bad guys will, yes, they'll, they'll run around uh, killing Shia and maybe uh, in the short run doing something we want to do. Uh, in the long run, of course, we'll just be making more enemies. So our friend uh, Frank Rich over at the New York Times wrote a scary column this week, and he said the system is blinking red, just like it was right before 9-11. And he talked about the fact that uh, al-Qaeda is reconstituted in uh, Pakistan. Uh, he always says, uh, Bush, Bush always says al-Qaeda is on the run, but actually, no, they've settled down. They've got a lovely spot in Waziristan. <laughs> And uh, he quotes this Michael Schurer, who was the head of the bin Laden group at the CIA, the guy who was trying to get bin Laden for all those years. And he, Michael Schurer says, Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan and Pakistan. If you want to address the real threat to America, that's where it is. Why do you think we keep fighting them where they aren't? Um, I, th I think this is, this is without question the most dangerous administration we've ever had in the history of the country, just in terms of what you're saying. They don't understand the Middle East. They, right now they have a disaster in their hands in Iraq, and they're trying to fail forward, as somebody in the, in the, in the military told me, failing forward by just pushing into Iran. Maybe we'll bomb Iran, maybe we won't. But they're, what they're doing is they're, we're running clandestine covert operations with the help of the Saudis. In effect, we're outsourcing clandestine operations to the Saudi government, which is pretty amazing for an American government. Um, we're outsourcing the most sensitive operations there are. We're not telling the Congress. We're disobeying the law. We're using money that isn't appropriated. Uh, the system is completely broken. And, it's, it's, and, and these guys uh, are, are really marching to their own tune. They do believe, as you said at your opening, Cheney does believe that uh, it doesn't matter what the facts are, that Iran's going to get a bomb. They don't have one now. There's no intelligence that says they may get one in five or ten years. But he thinks they're going to get the bomb. And he thinks their brown shirts, to use the old World War II, you know, the Nazi analogy, are, is Hezbollah. He thinks that Hezbollah has cells hidden, tucked away here in America. He believes that. I think the president does, but I know he does. I know that more or less firsthand. And I've been doing this for five years since 9-11, no other story. And I do have some access. He believes that, that uh, Hezbollah can... Once they, if Iran gets a bomb, they'll give it to Hezbollah. Hezbollah can get it to New York, Washington, L.A., or what you will, and poof. So in other words, the president and, and the vice president, they're not defending the Middle East. They're not defending Western Europe. In their own world, they believe they're defending, uh, they're defending us. And therefore, they're going to take the actions they think they have to do. And maybe we, they won't be appreciated now, but in the next 20, 30 years... George Bush believes he's going to be hailed as a visionary president. This is what I really think he believes. Well, I hope the next time I see you, we're both alive. Let's dance in style, let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait, we're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you going to drop the bomb or not? Let us die young, or let us live forever. We don't have the power, but we never say never. The short trip, the music's for the sad man. Can you imagine when this race is won? Turn our golden faces into the sun. Raising our leaders, we're getting in tune. The music's played by the, the madman. Washington Post editorial page has been a reliable ally of the White House when it comes to the war in Iraq. 
no surprise then that the paper has been critical of Democratic attempts to challenge that policy. A March 13th editorial continued in that tradition, alleging that Democrats like Nancy Pelosi are playing to a domestic anti-war sentiment. Not sure why that's such a bad idea in a democracy, but the Post says another audience should be considered, quote, the only constituency House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ignored in her plan for amending President Bush's supplemental war funding bill are the people of the country that the U.S. troops are fighting to stabilize. The Democratic proposal doesn't attempt to answer the question of why August 2008 is the right moment for the Iraqi government to lose all support from U.S. combat units. Actually, the Post's question is easily answered. The phased withdrawal plan closely resembles what Iraqis have asked for as well. According to the PIPA poll of September 2006, 71% of Iraqis want U.S. troops to leave within a year. The Post, like most U.S. media outlets, ignores this data because it destroys the illusion that the U.S. is occupying Iraq for the good of Iraqis. Senator from Delaware is right Mr. President, I have great respect for my friend from Arizona. Our troops don't lose wars. Bad policy, bad leadership loses wars. This should have the courage to stand up and tell the administration they have had a god-awful policy. They have put our troops in a position that, in fact, has made it virtually impossible for them to succeed at the outset. They deserve a policy. They deserve a plan. There is no plan. We went to war with too few troops. We went to war unnecessarily. We went to war with these men and women ill-equipped. They're coming home ill-served. It's about time we have the courage to stand up and say to the President, Mr. President, you have not only put us in harm's way, you have harmed us. You have no policy, Mr. President. I'm so tired of hearing this floor about courage. Have the courage to tell the administration, stop this ridiculous policy you have. We're taking sides in a civil war. I was there in Sherbanitsa. Oh, here we go. I was in Tuzla. I was in Sarajevo. I was in Birchko. Oh, doing so good. In the Balkans. How did we solve that? We solved that with a policy of separating the parties. He's right about this. This is a cycle of self-sustaining sectarian violence that 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 Americans will not be able to stop. Mr. President, this is ridiculous. There is no plan. I ask the President, everyone else that comes forward with a plan, whether it's capping or surging or whatever they have, will answer the two-word test. Then what? Then what? Then what? What happens after we surge these women and men? And by the way, he said President General Petraeus is one who believes, he may be the only one who believes this is a good idea. 
Virtually no one else thinks it's a good idea. Look, in this story about the Constitution, we gave the president specific authority, which is our responsibility. It was to take down Saddam if need be. It was to get rid of weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. And it was to get compliance with the UN resolutions. Every one of those have been met. Saddam is dead. There were no weapons. And Iraq is in compliance with the UN. So if you want to be literal about it, his mission no longer has the force of law. Everyone I have spoken to, including from the Biden-Gell plan straight through to the Iraq study group, says, look, use our troops wisely. Use them wisely. And what are the missions? We have the right and obligation constitutionally that we should have the courage constitutionally to exercise our responsibility to say, why are our troops there? Did anybody in this floor, did anybody count on the utter incompetence of this administration when they were given the authority they were given? Absolute incompetence. I stood on this floor three years ago saying we need another 100,000 troops before the sectarian violence became self-sustaining and warned as others did. Once it did, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not hold that country together. So what's our objective here? Our objective is to leave Iraq relatively stable, within its own borders, not a threat to its neighbors, and not a haven for terror. What is the president and my friend from Arizona that I was insisting on? What can never be a central government that is a democracy that is going to be fair to the rest of its citizens. It is not possible. Mark my words. So as long as the president keeps us on this ridiculous path, taking us off a cliff, I ask my colleagues, does anybody think they're going to be able to sustain keeping American forces in Iraq at 160,000 for another year and a half? What do you think? What do you think is going to happen in Tennessee, in Delaware, in Illinois? Are we going to break this man and woman's army? What are we going to do here? How many times do we ask those 175,000 Marines to rotate three, four, five, six, seven times? And what is the president's political solution? I love this. Everyone says there is no military solution, only a political solution. Name me one person who's come up with a political solution. Here we go. One. Other than me and Les Gelb. <laughs> oh. oh, Jesus. Here we there go. is a political solution. It's what history teaches us. When there's a self-sustaining sectarian violence, only one of four possibilities. It either expires, they kill one another off. Two, you impose a dictator. Three, you have an empire. Or four, you have a federal system. Mr. President, I ask 30, you know, 30 more seconds. Objection, Mr. Sir. President, I am tired of hearing this about courage. The only courage being evidenced in this country are those folks out in the battlefield getting shot at, getting killed. Why are they there? Let's get on with this. This is the only rational way to move. All this malarkey about cutting off funds.
This is about the mission. Mr. President, you're leading us off a cliff. Stop. To make a short story its appropriate length, I'll just say that within 24 hours of the last show being posted, this was written in the forums. Have these clips been used before? I think I've heard them, but I don't listen to these shows independently. Just asking. Well, without the slightest bit of uh, research on my part, I promptly responded, there's always the slightest possibility that, that could happen. I've got a pretty good system for avoiding it, but it could happen, and if it did, it was an accident. Well, uh, of course, it wasn't until I received another uh, comment, this time on the blog, simply saying, I love this podcast, but isn't this pretty much a re-release of the March 26th show? Well, that got me a little nervous, and so I, of course, had to go back and listen to the March 26th show, and it didn't take me very long to realize that Yes, that's exactly what happened. It was a re-release of the March 26th show. And um, the reason, essentially, uh, my own incompetence. Nothing more to it. Uh, the, the clips didn't get marked as used as they should have. And so, without a second thought, I had that set of clips and I sent them right off to Brian for them to be produced into a new episode. Oops. And, you know, because I, I thought to myself, didn't we just have a show about the new Congress? You know, this feels like we just did this, but uh, obviously I didn't piece it together. On a lighter note, though, I want to tell you this story. Uh, the last time I used the song uh, Forever Young by Alphaville apparently was like eight months ago. I didn't realize it had been that long. But um, when I did, uh, it was during another... Uh, anti-war anti episode and and right after I got this email well I won't read it but I got an email from a, a listener Megan wrote in to say that she hadn't listened to that song since junior high and she had never really listened to the lyrics but when she did listen to the lyrics in the context of the show she was sitting uh, you know at her desk at work and burst out crying and all of her co-workers looked at her like she was crazy. And usually for a podcaster, the highest honor you can get is having people write in and say that you made me laugh out loud on the subway and all the strangers around me looked at me like I was crazy. But I think this one topped it. And uh, so that story has always held a special place in my heart because of that. So from... Inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., I'm Jay, and I promise to uh, try to pay more attention to <clears throat> what I'm doing. This has been the Best of the Left Podcast from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Take you out any open door